This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Before we get to this week's interview with Angela Denker, I want to tell you about a new project that I've started over on Substack. It's a newsletter called The Post-Evangelical Post. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a newsletter. Um, I'm pretty excited about it. It is going to be available to all patron supporters for free, both current and former uh, patron supporters, and will be available for uh, as a twice-weekly publication, one free edition per week, and a paid subscription for an additional edition uh, for $7 a month. That number has been chosen because it is the lowest number um, to reach economic sustainability quickly. I do hope you check that out. It's one of two additional projects that are an extension of the sort of work that I do here on this show that I am hoping to get off the ground this year. So please go check that out and share it. You can visit postevangelicalpost.com and it will redirect you directly to the newsletter page. All right, let's get right into this interview with Angela Denker. As always, this episode has been produced and edited by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. All right, let's get into it. Welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Angela Danker. She is a pastor, a journalist, and the author of Red State Christians, Understanding the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump. Angela, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I'm really glad we were able to uh, arrange this, and it's 2020. I'm going to even say the date because it's going to come back later. It's January 7th, 2020. And I'm glad we're talking about your book and the, the work you've you've done to explore this question. To start, I'd, I'd like to start the show just learning a little bit about the guest and, and where they came from and what their uh, initial sort of religious background was. That's especially pertinent in the case of our conversation because so much of your book is about both those things, both identity and location. So yeah. if you could just share a little bit about where you grew up and, and what your formative spiritual background was like. Yeah, um, I was thinking about, you know, your audience and sort of the ways that my own faith background has crossed over a lot of dividing lines um, that that happen in Christianity. And Mm -hmm. I think our current climate has caused us to sort of really draw these strict dividing lines among Christians and say, well, either you're an evangelical or you're a mainline person or you're progressive or you're conservative. Um, and my own faith life has really crossed over a lot of those lines, which sometimes leaves me feeling homeless, um, but also kind of helps me to be able to understand a lot of different people's faith backgrounds. So my parents um, were actually married in the Catholic Church. Uh, my dad grew up Catholic, but my mom, uh, her father was a Lutheran pastor, and his grandfather was a Lutheran missionary in Canada from Germany. So there's kind of a tradition of um, Lutheran pastors that skips a generation on that side. And so my parents initially were going to take us to the Catholic Church, um, but there was a new Lutheran church plant that happened in an elementary school just down the road from our house. And so I grew up going to that church, um, and it sort of became a Lutheran mega church. Uh, So I had this unique experience of going to, you know, a church in a school and knowing the pastor really well and kind of, you know, having the run of the church as some of the first families to join. And then as I got older, the church just got bigger and I ended up being confirmed with like 200 kids and had this crazy, you know, only in Minnesota experience of mega church (laughs) Lutheranism, (laughs) which I didn't quite realize was so rare in America. Uh, But also, you know, from very early on, I was also really shaped by evangelicalism. Um, I went to 
a Baptist Bible camp growing up in northern Minnesota, and we played this game called Persecution, you know, where we are like the Christians being hunted by the government and trying to avoid being martyrs in the woods. (laughs) And then I attended youth group when I got older at a covenant church, went away on retreats, you know, did the whole um, reading the Bible challenge all the way up through college. Um, And then when I went to college, I went to the University of Missouri and played club volleyball there and was in a Bible study with girls from my volleyball team. And at that point, I realized I was the only one in that whole Bible study who had been baptized as a baby. And so in college, my eyes were really open to see you know, this experience that I had of Lutheranism and Catholicism was really a very limited segment of what American Christianity was. Um, And so kind of learned a lot there. Um, I went to a Methodist church while I was in college. And then I went into sports writing and moved first to Kansas City and then to Florida. And while I was in Florida, uh, got to know, you know, the local high school football coach as well. They sort of encouraged me to go to a few different Baptist churches. Um, So through that whole meandering road, I ended up, uh, after sports writing, then attending a Lutheran seminary. And so near the end of my time at, uh, in Florida, I was kind of going back to the Lutheran church, but I always just felt, you know, really at home in contemporary worship environments, which a lot of Lutherans don't, mm-hmm. um, and felt really just strongly that, that the different groups of American Christians needed to learn from each other instead of hating each other. <laughs> <laughs> So within Minnesota, is that primarily a place where ELCA Lutheranism is or LCMS? And I I know this is sort of getting in the weeds, but this is the show to get into the weeds with <laughs> American Christianity. And so LCMS being uh, Lutheran Missouri Synod. Yes. Yeah. ELCA being the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Yeah. And of course, growing up in Minnesota, um, <laughs> I actually... I'm kind of embarrassed, but maybe it's a good thing to say that growing up, I didn't really even know there were different kinds of Lutherans. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was brought up in a church that was, I think, previously part of the LCA, which was the the Swedish Lutheran denomination, um, Mm -hmm. even though my family is German. Uh, But that church, you know, became part of the ELCA. And when I met my husband in college, he was like, oh, yeah, I'm Lutheran, too. I said, oh, that's awesome. Um, And then he and I both found out that he was Missouri Synod Lutheran. And when I came to worship with his family for the first time, um, I realized that, like, they had to ask special permission from the pastor in order for me to commune with them. And at that point, I started to learn a little more about these you know, huge differences between the Missouri Synod and the ELCA. The ELCA is much more dominant in Minnesota, um, Mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of different groups. And it's, again, just kind of a sad reflection of the ways that um, that we've become really defined by social issues um, rather than by the gospel, I think. So, right. To sort of echo your experience, I grew up United Methodist in a small town United Methodist church before moving to the Chicago suburbs and went to a, <clears throat> I don't know, I don't know what the like classification for mega church is. I don't know if it's like right. 20, 2,500 or so. I mean, it's, it was like on the, it was on the border. It sure. was technically United Methodist church. Um, and, but it was very, very different. Um, and I, I didn't even learn until like I enrolled at Indiana Wesleyan, how different like the Wesleyan church was from the United Methodist Church and that there were free Methodists and all these other things. So, I mean, and ecumenical relations and understanding even just within within churches, I, I it's understandable that, like, our younger, like, teenage selves didn't know that. <laughs> but, like, uh, adults, uh, you know, you would, you would think we might know a little bit more about, <laughs> about each other. Yeah. Yeah. Ignorance maybe was bliss, though, for a little bit, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's also true. That's also true. So I'm very curious what made you want to to write this book. Um, clearly, you have this you have these personal experiences of participating in all of these different different types of church traditions, different denominations, things like that. What was it that spurred you to want to research this book and travel to all the different parts of the country that you did in order to investigate this question of 
why these voters voted for Donald Trump. Yeah, so I think the the best part about the book for me was that it combined two things that have been really pretty equally strong callings in my life, which have been first this calling into journalism and um, this calling to, as a journalist, to give people the opportunity to tell their own stories, not to tell their stories for them, not to say who they are, but to give them the opportunity to, to tell their stories in their own words and mm-hmm. me as a reporter being the conduit to do that. Um, and then that second calling to also really apply the gospel to modern American life and to say, okay, this is everything that's happening politically. This is what's happening in our country. And how does that line up with what we've learned about Jesus through his life, death and resurrection? So ultimately I got to do that in Red State Christians. The journey to get there um, was a little bit surprising and unexpected. Uh, During the 2016 election, I was serving as pastor of community life and discipleship of a large, again, you know, on the megachurch border, maybe <laughs> congregation in Yorba Linda, California, which mm. is in North Orange County, um, happens to be the birthplace of Richard Nixon, um, and really an area that is heavily influenced by conservative evangelical Christianity and by megachurches. You know, Saddleback was nearby, Mariners was nearby, Crystal Cathedral. Uh, and so the church that I worked at, while we were technically a Lutheran church, um, The other pastor and myself had both gone to Lutheran seminary, but most of our church staff came much more from a Bible college background, um, from places like Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I watched the 2016 election as a pastor in this environment and really kind of after the election sort of put on my journalist hat in a sense and sort of stepped back to watch and see and I was really troubled by um, the ways that that the 2016 election became so important as an identity marker for Christians in particular. And because of that, it became really divisive. Even in my own congregation, you know, you would see that people maybe didn't sit together after church anymore. Um, there was so much defensiveness. Um, there were just a lot more experiences that people had around racism, for instance. Um, And so at the same time, I was also being shaped by how much we loved this church community and how my family and I were being shaped by the preschool that my son attended at our church and how we were learning about the Holy Spirit through contemporary worship. And so I had this sort of mixed experience. And um, after watching that for a few years, a couple of years, um, my husband actually had the opportunity to take a job back in Minneapolis, which is where I grew up. Uh, and we really kind of wanted to get closer to family. And I was also feeling called to write more publicly to get back to the journalistic work that I'd done in the past. Um, when you work at such a large congregation, you're sort of consumed by it and you can really do all your work within that space and for that institution. And I felt like I was being called maybe to write for people who would never sit foot inside my church. Um, So we moved back to Minneapolis. I was doing some work writing Sunday school curriculum for Fortress Press and kind of over lunch told some people, you know, hey, I have an idea for a book. They suggested I submitted a pitch. And the initial book was um, titled Bibles and Boob Jobs. And it was all (laughs) extensively focused on Orange County. And just sort of that, I do think that Orange County tells a big story about the election of Donald Trump because Orange County megachurches were some of the first to really embrace um, celebrity culture, pop culture in conservative Christianity and celebrity pastors like Rick Warren, you know, coming out of these churches. And so I think that for conservative evangelical Christians to embrace a pop culture celebrity president like Trump, the groundwork was really set in a lot of these Southern California mega churches. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Fortress Press got my idea and I had lunch with an editor and he said, you know, we actually really want to do a book called Red State Christians, and we want you to look at the whole country. Would you open be open to doing that? And that's when I started to sort of tell him about um, the third piece of this book for me, which is a personal piece. That is, my parents, you know, are both kind of moderate Democrats for the most part. Um, and then my in-laws 
were always sort of moderate Republicans. They voted back and forth. Uh, but through the 2016 election, became really big Trump supporters and, you know, attended rallies and have hats and are big donators. And so this was like a personal experience for me as well, watching a divided political family and experiencing how that affected our faith. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that that part, especially the, the personal element that you mentioned just at the at the end there is very relatable for a lot of people that listen to this show. And I'm 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 curious, and this is something that we'll come back to, and it's probably going to be the thrust of a lot of my questions for you, sure. is this sense of how people reach such different conclusions, I guess, about what the gospel means or what Christianity means as it relates to politics and society. Mm-hmm. My work is generally w- with people that have been harmed by evangelicalism. So my, my sort of bridges are, are focused a lot of times between people that are still religious and people who are no longer religious, but are all have all been removed, um, or have left the evangelical community, but you've entered into these evangelical spaces with the interest of trying to understand why this support for Trump was so widespread. Um, and each person, when confronted with the question of Trump, seems to have had a little bit different mental calculus about why they supported him. Um, you do this really good thing, uh, this, this great thing in your book, uh, by visiting these actual locations, and most of your chapters are about these regions in the United States. Um, right. uh, could you talk a little, let's talk a little bit first about the sort of nationalism that you saw in the South and in Texas, what what did you see, and and what was it that drew people to drew evangelicals in particular to Trump in that area of the country? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I didn't necessarily anticipate when I began my research was just the degree to which Christian nationalism was really influential throughout Trump's entire Christian uh, coalition of voters. Um, but it operated really differently in different regions. So particularly what I noticed in Texas um, in a few different places, but especially when I visited Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, I noticed that the Christian nationalism that was practiced was really theologically tied. And it was really theologically tied um, in, in a lot of senses to the Old Testament, to a sense of a theology of land, a, a theology that almost echoes in some ways American Mormon, um, Latter-day Saints theology, that is this idea that America holds a status as the promised land in an analogous way to Israel holding a a status as the promised land. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sense of of manifest destiny of Christians. There's an apocalyptic uh, theology that that the end of the world is always right around the corner. And so that introduces a lot of fear into American politics, especially for evangelical Christians um, growing up under this theology. And it's also, um, I would say that this, this theology of America is taught so explicitly um, in some of these Southern Baptist churches that I, that I attended and experienced um, that it, it, it totally crowds out most of the other parts of Jesus' message, you know, Jesus' uh, desire for us to care for the poor, Jesus' desire for us to forgive one another, Jesus' desire for us to do justice, to to let the oppressed go free. Um, the Christian nationalism teaching is so strong in these teachings that it really crowds out everything else, whereas in maybe in other parts of the country— um, there's a vague sense of Christian nationalism, but people aren't hearing it as explicitly in their congregations. They're kind of coming to it on their own through this sort of idea of love the flag, support the military, um, but it's definitely not as theologically explicit. Mm-hmm. Do you think that breaks through to the national level at any in any way, either through media coverage or through through policies that are enacted by people within the Trump administration? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, and I really think that I would I would like to see more attention paid to the ways in which that type of theology 
promotes a certain type of anti-Semitism, which is cloaked by this sense that America and Israel are friends and American, American evangelicals and Israelis are on the same team. Um, that really covers up this, again, sense of American Christian destiny that ultimately, you know, says that Jews either repent or they aren't saved. <laughs> um, but there's, it's really covered up by this sense that, you know, we're on the same team. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the policies like moving the embassy to Jerusalem or um, even some of the anti-Iran rhetoric that, of course, we're experiencing the aftermath of right now, all sort of relates to a very um, literal reading of the book of Revelation and also the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And that's that's highly relevant within the last four days. What? Because due to the assassination of Soleimani, uh, as well as today's date, again, I mentioned is January 7th, 2020, and there have been retaliatory attacks uh, just this evening in U.S. bases in Iraq. Um, from Iran because of these actions that have been fueled in large part due to the same sorts of things that you're talking about now. And we're seeing, too, the fallout um, of of just increased violence. And this is a very violent theology um, and violence that's occurring in worshiping communities. You know, over the holidays, just a few weeks ago, um, a shooting at a church in Texas, as well as uh, a stabbing that happened at the home at an Orthodox Jewish home. You know, so we're seeing this mm -hmm. violent theology of that that we must protect our promised land, America. Um, and again, the the most tragic part about it. I mean, it's hard to pick a most tragic part, I guess, but one of the most tragic parts about it for me is that it just totally clouds out and crowds out the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and everything that Jesus talked about um, is just really lost in this theology. And I think that's why some of the Southern Baptist pastors that I spoke to said that they really consider it a gospel distortion, that mm. the gospel has been distorted to reflect American patriotism, American strength, American military might, to the detriment of people even knowing the story of Jesus or understanding the Sermon on the Mount or the parables or any of the things that have been really central to American Christianity, despite no matter what brand of Christianity you practice, those have been the tenets of American Christianity to varying degrees. topic of, of, of violence, uh, you do have an entire chapter that's called God and Guns. Um, and it, it really addresses this directly. And you visit at a church that is in Florida that is known for having people in the pews who are armed. And you mentioned just this, that this, this recent headline again, um, within the last couple of weeks of, of a church that had an active shooter. Um, and there were actually people in the pews that also had were also armed and Trump used that to as a sense of this is why people need guns like and to to rally his base um he he posted excuse me i can't quote his tweets but um right. but nonetheless like that was seen as as a justification for um for lax gun safety and gun control laws here in the united states do you think that the churches that are so pro second amendment or pro guns do you think that they have a sense that they are defending this this violence do they or do they feel it's justified or do they feel that it's a, a sense of more of self assertion and the right to bear arms and that sort of 
identity politics that that is so important to a lot of people that are conservative? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's really a mix, and that is the important thing to remember when we're talking about all this. Um, but while I say that, I, I, I will say that the church that I went to in Florida, um, not only are there people in the congregation who are, are armed, but that church is very explicit about the fact that the pastors are armed. And mm-hmm. when I went to worship that night, I it was actually the youth night worship that I went to. And the pastor that night actually made to me, he's like, well, I'm, I'm not carrying tonight. Um, so maybe some of it is a little bit of bluster, but he did say, you know, I've got my permit. It's really important to me to have a concealed carry permit. Um, and what I noticed in that congregation was that this sense of, um, of gun rights was really coupled with in that congregation um, a theological sense that Christianity in America is under attack and that it must be defended violently. Um, so even the sermon that I listened to that night, um, again, there's this real sense that the end of the world is very real. It's very possible. And Christians must be willing to defend against whatever comes toward the end of the world. And the leader of the church, so he wasn't pastoring the night that I went there, but his name is Rodney Howard Brown. And he's, uh, I think, written a recent book called Killing Uncle Sam. And it's sort of this book cover with like a bloody American flag and Uncle Sam. And just really this sense that that Christianity in America um, must be violently defensive of its faith. And how the interesting thing about that is that Rodney Howard Brown is South African. He's not even, um, you know, a native longtime American. Mm. And he sort of represents this global brand of Pentecostalism and prosperity gospel that he's merged in America with um, a Southern Baptist sense uh, and conservative Christian sense of, you know, God, guns, and America, apple pie, football, all those things. And it's it's interesting to see these things come together. And you have to wonder um, what the real motivation is, especially for somebody like Rodney Howard Brown. Um, you know, I, I wonder if I think a lot of the motivation is financial, that this is it's lucrative um, to preach this type of message. And people are willing to buy books and you know, watch services and give money to defend America. And then, so I'll couple that with that was my experience there. And I do think that that is a very real danger and it's a growing edge in uh, American Christianity. Mm -hmm. I will also say that um, I spoke to a lot of pastors, particularly in rural areas where there's a, there's a large long tradition of hunting culture um, here in the Midwest, of course, in Minnesota, big culture of deer hunting, and I currently am the pastor of a, of a church in a small town about an hour west of Minneapolis. And I honestly don't know if there are people in my congregation who are who are armed. And I can see a sense where for people whom guns are a part of rural life and culture, um, that they see as part of, okay, if I'm comfortable using a gun, that this is how I see as protecting my church. Um, I'm glad that, you know, the gunman in Texas was taken out before he could do more damage, but it's really, really hard to think about sanctuary being a place where, where there are guns. And I say that as somebody who I didn't grow up, you know, around guns. Um, my grandpa Mm -hmm. fought a bunch of, hunted a bunch of small stuff and he like shot his toe off. Um, <laughs> but other than that, my parents weren't hunters, so I don't have that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I come from a similar background of my family. I grew up in a small town in Indiana with, uh, like 16,000 people, mm-hmm. but my, my parents are from an even smaller town. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where a lot of my extended family, um, stayed. My parents are the ones that, that moved away. Um, sure. So I was the one that was, I was literally called the city kid growing up <laughs> by my, by my cousins and stuff. Um, <laughs> um, and you're right. Like in rural areas, like there is an element of hunting and, and, and gun culture being just prevalent and part of the fabric of, of culture there. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these 
communities are are also or historically were racially homogenous. There are other elements there too. Mm-hmm. However, like there is a pretty big distinction between someone having a twenty two to shoot a deer or to scare things off their farm and AR-15s. Yeah. But do you do you think that um that those things have been conflated by this sort of preaching of they're coming for our guns? Like that is something that admittedly a lot of liberals will say to to lambast conservative concerns. Um, but do you think that those things have been conflated in the pulpit or in other places so that, like you said, to gin up support or to sell books? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, as a journalist, you know, I always try to pay attention to the media's role in all of this. And I do think that that's this idea of creating a straw man argument um, in the case of guns rights supporters, you know, creating this argument that they want to take your guns. I don't think that there's ever... I mean, maybe in a few cases, I guess, Beto O'Rourke recently talking about a buyback program, but um, I don't think there's ever been a large American political desire to take away hunting from rural Americans. Um, but there is, there's been a straw man created on both sides that that doesn't really exist to create fear and to incite violence. Yeah, and that I I, I do want to pivot a little bit and continue talking about your visits to rural areas that that to me was was very interesting just because again I have family that live in those areas uh, there's a vested interest and there's a vested just common interest in in there being a broader discussion between people that live in these areas and the urban centers right. and as people like the the general trend globally is towards city centers. However, within the United States, rural areas still maintain considerable political clout. Yeah. So yeah. they need they need to be understood. And one of the things that to me was was interesting was the sense in some areas of just this sort of be, people being aggrieved of feeling like they were were overlooked by the Democratic Party. Um, could you talk about that and and where you where you saw that, and and how that intersected with support for Trump and the justification that people had for Trump um, and for supporting him despite him demonstrating pretty clear misogyny, clear indications of racism, no indication of of any Christ-like uh, qualities of of any sort. Um, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, um, I think this is another case where um, Republicans have been really successful in creating a narrative. And in some cases, I think that there's a lot of um, reasonable aggrievement among people living in communities that are poverty-stricken, whether they're rural poverty-stricken areas, such as Appalachia or many places in the South, um, some places in the West, uh, or whether they're urban centers that are poverty-stricken. But what Republicans have done in a lot of cases is to say that uh, for rural whites who are living in situations of poverty, that you need to blame um, people of color, or you need to blame the LGBTQ community, rather than um, an overall sense that because we have so much money in American politics, it's very difficult for people uh, living in any sort of poverty to have any kind of voice in politics, because our political culture is so dictated by money, by lobbyists, by political ads, and by campaigning. And so one thing that I really noticed throughout the book is a really considerable grassroots organization gap um, between Republicans and Democrats, and particularly between conservative Christians and progressive or maybe mainline Christians, that I noticed this even I went to, in 2018, I went to the March for Life, which is the anti-abortion march on Washington uh, against Roe v- to repeal Roe v. Wade. And then the day after the March for Life, I went to the Women's March on Washington. And it was really apparent, just even in those comparing those two marches, that Republican organizers 
uh, really have a leg up when it comes to grassroots organizing and just um, the entrenchment in so many of these communities. And I think some of that is just the difference in personality between the two parties. Um, but it's really led to a huge gap of just, I talked to voters in South Dakota. I was doing a book presentation in Sioux Falls a couple of months ago. And I talked with a few people who said, you know, I voted Republican my whole life. And I just can't stomach a lot of things about Trump. And I really am looking to maybe move into the Democratic Party, but there's just no party organization in South Dakota for Democrats. And they just didn't even know where to begin because mm -hmm. Republicans are just so taken for granted as this is the party in so many uh, rural communities across America. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And uh, some some people who haven't necessarily may, maybe haven't lived in rural areas, they don't they may just assume that rural equals conservative. Do you think that that is just a concession that Democrats and, and even other progressives will have 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 made? And, and what do you think can counter that? Yeah, I definitely think that happens. And I, I even have to, you know, not be a hypocrite when I say that, because I even think back to I've done so many book presentations in red states and conservative areas. And, you know, I'll have people come to the talks and sometimes like a an older man, maybe in his 70s, will get up to talk and he'll be wearing like a a shirt that indicates he's a veteran and like some sort of military hat. And mm -hmm. I will assume that he's going to say something um, maybe critical of my research or that he is going to be really defensive of Trump. And oftentimes I'm wrong. And um, I just noticed for myself that that I'm doing the same thing that so many of us have done, which is just automatically put people into categories based on what they look like, where they're from, how old they are. And um, I think that that's been really unhelpful because I do think that there's been a lack of articulation of a democratic message in rural areas, in red states, and so many voters, you know, Democrats have taken for granted, especially African-American voters across much of the South. And so I think that there needs to be much more of a democratic articulation. For example, when it comes to abortion, you know, I think... Democrats really need to listen to people of faith when it comes to talking about abortion and saying, what does what does it mean to Democrats to talk about sanctity of life? Because Democrats can talk about their work on anti-poverty issues. They can talk about their work on uh, working against oppression and justice and anti-capital punishment. All those things are about sanctity of life. But um, Democrats often don't seem to know how to use religious language. And so they cede so much of that territory to Republicans who often only pay lip service to it, but instinctively seem to know how to use that religious language in a way that sounds more familiar to a lot of uh, red state voters. Do you think that's true in the 2020 um, cycle as well? Just because I'm, there have been a lot of Democratic nominees or people seeking the Democratic nomination, including Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg and and others who have spoken about the role of faith in their lives. Uh, recently, I know that that Elizabeth Warren spoke about the role of the biblical tradition as it relates to bankruptcy law. Mm -hmm. um, and Buttigieg has, has certainly talked about his faith. And other people seeking the Democratic nomination have talked about the role of faith in their lives. Uh, Cory Booker early on talked about mm -hmm. his, his relationship yeah. with, a, with a Jewish man. And why he, how he has explored faith and religion and spirituality. Um, do you think that that still is true, or is there just still a disconnect because of the lack of shared language? Because to me, like language is language is is so much of it, right? Like yeah. being able to to talk like someone else really, mm -hmm. really matters. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was feeling really hopeful, you know, at the beginning, particularly about um, Buttigieg and just some of the ways that he wanted to be open about his faith and to talk about it. Um, as the election cycle has wound on, um, I have found that even though he is really often quick to talk and to cite scripture, um, sometimes he tends to do it in the last few debates I've noticed. He, he does it in a way that sort of does the same thing that 
that Republicans have done for so many years, which is to say, well, we're the real Christians. And so then I hear sort of Buttigieg trying to say, well, no, we're the real Christians because this is, and I think that that can be sort of effective, but I think that a lot of voters, it just still, it can still be sort of painted as elitist or talked about, you know, like Elizabeth Warren talking about the bankruptcy law. I actually didn't see that. Um, But I was, hopeful when she was asked about abortion in the last debate, and she was asked if there was room for pro-life Democrats within the Democratic Party. And she sort of said, you know, it's not it's not up to me to say who can come in the Democratic Party. And I think that was a good answer, but I really would have loved to hear her talk about sanctity of life or to use some of the, I think, like you say, language is so powerful. And so to use some of these same terms um, to talk about prayer I think is just continues to be a learning curve for Democrats and the class issue is such a big one too. And it's so interesting because of course, Trump grew up in New York city, um, you know, tons and tons of money, but he finds a way to speak the language of working class Americans in a lot of ways, even just by like talking about McDonald's or spelling words wrong. Um, And I'm not suggesting that Democrats do that. Um, but I am suggesting that maybe it begins with with listening more, with with putting some energy into grassroots networks in these communities. And also, I really think that some of the most important things to do are listen to evangelicals of color, many of them who come from red states, who come from conservative communities, and listen to the ways that they've worked in those communities. And also um, to really listen to uh, Democrats who come from red states, you know, somebody like Doug Jones, some of these new people who are elected, um, Kendra Horn elected in Oklahoma. We really need to listen to people who are working in these communities to help have a really authentic kind of communication. Hmm. That's a really good segue because I, I I do want to talk to you about how race comes up in your book, um, because it is, it is prevalent. I mean, it is, it is a huge part of, of American life, um, racism and the, the consequences of slavery. Uh, it's something that that we deal with, whether we're conscious of it or not every day. Mm -hmm. It's part of, part of the, the American, of American history and of American life. And I understand that the, the pitfalls of, of two white people talking about race. Um, but within the context of your book, you do talk and you interview a number of people of color, African-Americans, uh, Latinx people mm-hmm. in different faith communities, um, and whether they're evangelical or not. And some of them are. Uh, and I, I, I do, I, I learned through the process of doing this show to really specify white evangelicalism yeah. um, to be the main thing that I talk about. Mm-hmm. However, a lot of these people of color that you spoke to are in predominantly white congregations, predominantly white traditions. Mm-hmm. So when you spoke to these these people that are in these communities that could be and very likely are hostile to them, uh, whether overtly or just implicitly, what was their reaction? What was their res- their response? And I know you've written a whole book about it, and that's a, <laughs> that's the hard thing about <laughs> having an interview about about an entire book is you know we're we're trying to consolidate things and into something to to have people read your <laughs> read your work, <laughs> but to speak to it a little bit, even a, a couple of examples that come to mind for you, of of how uh, these people reacted to the election of Trump and the general tenor of political and social discussion. Yeah. So definitely a few people come to mind. Um, one of the first people that comes to mind when you ask about this is a pastor named Wes Tamifuna. And at the time when I was doing my chapter on Orange County, um, he was one of the pastors at Mariner's church in Irvine, which is the seventh largest church in America and is also located in some of America's wealthiest real estate, um, right near Newport Coast, uh, not too far from Laguna Beach, uh, just really, really expensive area, immaculate campus. And so when I met Pastor Wes, I met him at uh, that evening's youth night service, and he gave this really powerful message uh, talking about humility. 
And it was really, as I've been traveling to all these different congregations and hearing a lot of messages about power and about defensiveness and, you know, we have to defend our country, his message really stood out as a different message and one that was really tied to to the story of Jesus and this sense that uh, we need to love and to listen to one another first. And so when I talked to Pastor Wes after the service and learned a little bit more about him, um, he comes from a half Mexican, half Tongan background. Uh, he played football in college and was in the process of getting his ministry degree while I was talking to him. And he'd worked at Mariners for a few years at that point. And he told me uh, some really tough things about the experience that he had working in this predominantly white, wealthy context. Uh, he occasionally got to preach at sort of the big services on Sunday morning in the big church. And he said when he did so, he actually had people say to him, you know, we're not used to seeing brown people deliver the message. We're used to seeing brown people be the recipient of sort of our charity at the church. And so they were really vocal about their lack of familiarity with someone who looked like him giving the sermon. Uh, he also told me about lots of times at church that he would be mistaken for a member of the brown, grounds crew that people would come up and tell him, oh, you know, you need to water here. You need to fix this plant here. Or he'd be in the cafe and people would come up to him and, you know, think that like, oh, can you get me, you know, this kind of coffee? <laughs> um, so he he already had sort of this sense of discomfort with being in this congregation. While at the same time, he was this face and this voice for the youth of the congregation and this really powerful speaker. And a lot of people saw in him an example of somebody who, who they wanted to be like. Um, and so he had this, this duality, a sense of mission in his time at Mariners. And when I talked to him about the election of 2016, he told me that he sort of has this network and knows a lot of other people of color working in large evangelical mega churches. And he told me that often um, they're put on sort of the outreach staff or the mission staff, or they're placed in particular roles, uh, often not the senior pastor role, not the head administrative roles, but roles that sort of put them in mission or outreach type work. And he said that many of them were talking to each other after the election and talking about just this feeling of betrayal and fear and worry because of many of the racial incidents that happened around Donald Trump's election. And that would happen later. Things like Charlottesville, mm -hmm. these, you know, neo-Nazi groups who are supporting Trump and saying that he's embracing their message. And so Wes told me that, that when the election happened and him and these other pastoral colleagues he knew who were people of color were feeling hopeless and betrayed and worried at that same time in their church offices, their white colleagues were celebrating and rejoicing and saying, this is the best thing that ever happened. He's going to be the best president we've ever had. And there was this huge disconnect. And he said that as time went on, there was really an unwillingness um, by his white colleagues and white colleagues in other churches to really listen to the experience of people of color and why this election felt and looked so different to them. And there was just really an unwillingness to hear their stories. And so kind of the mm -hmm. conclusion to this whole experience is that um, Pastor Wes, a few months, I think maybe a year after I interviewed him, he ended up leaving Mariners and going now to work at another church in Orange County that was founded by another sort of person of color who had worked at a large mega church who left to start his own church. So it's it's sad to me that um, that there's been this closing out of those voices from white mega churches. But I'm also, I guess, hopeful that some of this might at some point be a wake up call. At the same time, when I talk about that, I also do have to say that part of my work in the book was really blocking the myth that that evangelicals who voted for Trump were a monolith. So I did spend I have a really interesting chapter from Houston where I spent my time with Arab American Christians and talked to them about their support for Trump, um, but also some of their disillusionment. So it was important for me to sort of show 
all the different faces of um, what it looked like in among evangelicals when it came to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's not, I mean, that's certainly not an easy, easy task and people are not caricatures. Like people have, have depth and nuance to them. Mm -hmm. Certainly what you, what you mentioned about pastor Tamafuna, um, I hope I'm pronouncing his name properly. Um, is, that you know the the onus the the burden should not have been on him in any of those ways those instances right. that he described to you were instant instances of racism right like and i appreciate that that you uh, throughout the book you you do not shy away from from indicating when things are openly racist like because i think that's important for people that that are not people of color for white people to be able to point out and say, this is inappropriate. This is, this is not the right sort of tenor or don't yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's good for white people to point out when things are racist. <laughs> right. Um, and I, and that is one of the things, even in your conclusion, you say you, you, you never, you never tried to whitewash anything when you saw right. indications of nationalism or racism in the places that you visited you noted that um, certainly there were elements of hu- humanity that shone through um, even despite those things. But it, mm-hmm. to your point, it's deeply unfortunate that that people ch- chose uh, either a political affiliation or um, support of an administration that doesn't deserve their support or that doesn't emulate the life of Christ in any sort of way. It's just a, it's a loss <laughs> and it's something yeah. that I think I grieve. And I think people who, whether they identify as evangelical or what have you, however they relate to that term, personally, I think it's more of an adjective than a noun. Yeah. It indicates a, a prior relationship. There are a, like tiny little death by a thousand cuts. And so mm-hmm. this sense, this, this grief that the, tradition that may have shaped you and may have led you to become politically liberal is so the word I want to use is violently opposed to the life of Christ and what the ethics that he seems to have uh, indicated in as shown in, in the gospel texts. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of sadness and there's a lot of wreckage. Um, and there's a lot of people trying to put the pieces back together. Um, this past mm-hmm. summer, I met in El Paso, Ariel Martinez. Um, he's a Liberty grad, Southern Baptist pastor, working, you know, right at the U.S.-Mexico border, and really trying to to see his fellow El Paso residents and his churchgoers as human beings, whether they're undocumented, whether they're military members, whether they work for the Border Patrol. Um, I I really saw a lot of hope in El Paso and in him and in the stories of a lot of uh, Latinx Christians who I met there. Uh, That that chapter was very powerful. And one of the, you you spoke to a woman, I'm trying to find her last name, her first name. I know her last name is Guzman. Yeah, Rosemary. (laughs) Rosemary Guzman. Um, She talked about um, growing up in Bolivia and she talks about her own prejudices towards other uh, Latinx people, um, based on, because of the media that, that she was shown. Yeah. Um, and she says, I've changed now. I'm all gray, not black and white. And God is okay with that. And I, I, yeah, <laughs> I appreciated that quite a bit that, that you could share that in the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, she's doing the work and there's, that's what, I, that's what I'm trying to hold on to, you know, in these days where we're, facing um, Iranian retaliatory strikes and were, you know, murdering people around the globe by drones. Um, I'm Mm -hmm. trying to hold on to a sense of hope. And the hope that I find is in the stories of a lot of these anonymous Christians around the country, many of them, you know, not famous, many of them working in places that are difficult. um, And, and many of them are are evangelicals of color and Christians of color, and they're really the ones who I look to when I need to remember hope. And I think that truly represents um, an American Christianity that for too long has allied itself with power and with money and with government. And 
that's not the legacy that Jesus desired, I don't think, for the church, that we're, we're required to be a resistance movement, a, a movement independent of the government, and a movement that really hews closely to, to the story of Jesus. sort of bookend our conversation with a question as far as how we have these conversations with within our own families. This is certainly an open question even for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, in your conclusion, you write, red state Christians are my family. They're your family. They're you. For me, this book is not about some other America that I had to excavate and uncover like an archaeologist. Rather, for me, this book is about America itself and ultimately about uncovering myself, my family, and my faith. I That really resonated with me, again, being like being from a place like Indiana mm-hmm. um, and like being from a place like I was from central Indiana. My extended family is from Kentuckyana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like even within a place like Indiana, there's there's difference of degrees. How do you think, having written this book, having traveled across the country, how do you think predominantly white families can discuss these family, these matters, political matters, matters of faith, and how they entangle so much in in the United States? Because there there are so many things at play. There's even generational things at play. It's not easy for millennials to talk to boomers about lots of things of, of import because of the whole okay boomer thing <laughs> and the whole like... Like even that, that became a grievance. <laughs> like millennials have legitimate grievances, and <laughs> but right. and boomers and boomers have. There was a recent study that they are actually more narcissistic than millennials. <laughs> so like each each side has ammo, so to speak. Absolutely. But at the same time, like their families, they should be able to talk about these things. They need to talk about these things. I know that there are commentators of color online who are like you know white people talk to your talk to your people and even folks that who may listen to this show that started in a conservative place even personally um and have migrated to a liberal understanding of christianity of the world politics what do you see as a way forward um in those conversations that that we have with one another yeah, I mean, it's a it's a question for me, too, and something I still work through, even as I have these conversations with strangers and talk about my book all over the country. You know, when I'm talking to my in-laws about politics, I still don't quite know the best ways to approach it and the best ways um, to do it. But I do think that if you are listening to this right now and you're someone who came uh, from an evangelical background or came from a conservative background or are still kind of on your own journey, um, I do think that that God is is calling you into into mission right now and is calling you to play an important role in the future of our country, um, because I think that that those of us who come from those kind of places, those of us who exist in in spaces that are not only liberal um, are really important to this country. And what I've found is that there's a lot of people who feel like they haven't been listened to and a lot of people who feel misunderstood. And the first step is always to listen to each other and to really understand where somebody's coming from before you can begin to say, okay, well, this is the corrective. This is what I think. Because the beginning of a lot of this work is just disarming one another, whether it's literally trying to disarm each other of our assault rifles or whether Mm -hmm. it's trying to disarm one another emotionally to be able, a, a lot of people are so defensive and so anxious and so frustrated that to even think about understanding the position of someone else or understanding somebody else's needs. They just can't get there until they first feel like, but no, you have to understand me first. And I think 
that we have to do that together and we have to do it in person. Um, and we have, we can't do it over social media. We can't do it, uh, over the internet because there's so much, the most hateful things that I heard when I talked to people almost always came out from like, Oh, I saw this on the internet or I saw this from this political pundit or I saw it on Twitter. And so much of that stems from a place that is being used maliciously by Russia, by government actors, by people creating propaganda. And so we really have to have these conversations in person and beginning with those closest to you. Yeah. And that's very important. And it's something that, that a lot of us struggle with. And again, you know, that's includes me. <laughs> yeah. Well, pray, pray before you do it. <laughs> Well, Angela, I, I do I, I appreciate you coming on and, and talking about your book and, and, and everything that went into it. Um, where can people find the book? Where can they find you online or elsewhere? Yeah, so you can get the book wherever books are sold. It's at uh, a lot of Barnes & Nobles over the country. It's on Amazon. Um, if you get it on the Fortress Press website, that's even better. Also, if you go to fortresspress.com slash redstatechristians, uh, you can find a free discussion guide if you're interested in talking about the book in a small group or in a, in a book club or at your church, uh, that's a really good tool to sort of start to have some of these conversations where you feel like, okay, here's some questions I can lead into and I don't have to come up with them on my own. Um, you can also go to AngelaDanker.com to see upcoming events where I'll be talking about the book and to read some of the things I've been writing recently in my blog. Great. Angela, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Happy New Year. It's going to get better. (laughs) (laughs) I I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Felix. Thanks. 